Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before talking with my guests about Donald Judd, a note on some special programming we'll be doing over the next few weeks. Keep an eye on your podcatcher feed for some bonus episodes about art in a time of global pandemic. We'll be talking about making art, studying art, writing about art, and so on. These shows will be a little unusual, less tightly structured than our usual programs, for one, but also with different advertising. We've opened these shows up to art museums and related institutions around the country so that they can share with you how they're meeting this moment, how they are continuing to contribute to their communities and to the broader intellectual world. The first of these episodes will drop tomorrow and will feature Ursula von Reidingsvard and Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly. Don't miss it. On to this week's show. The Museum of Modern Art in New York has organized Judd, the first posthumous retrospective of Donald Judd's work in the United States. Judd was curated by my guest, Anne Temkin, with Yasmiel Raymond, Tamar Margalit, and Erica Cook. The exhibition features over 70 sculptures, paintings, drawings, and prints. It highlights Judd's sculpture practice, especially his eagerness to eliminate many of art's usual pillars, such as narrative or metaphor. While MoMA is temporarily closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the exhibition is scheduled to be at the museum through July 11th. It's accompanied by an outstanding catalog. Amazon offers it for $75. We'll have a link on the show page at manpodcast.com. MoMA has also posted 80 installation shots from the exhibition and an extensive audio playlist. We'll have links to those at the show page as well. On the second segment, Caitlin Murray joins me to discuss the new book, Donald Judd Interviews. And if you haven't given us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the program, please take about 30 seconds to help promote the show and to help new people find it. Five stars, please. Thanks very much. Ann Temkin, after the break. Now on view at the Getty Center, Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, an exhibition of extraordinary drawings by one of the most creative and influential artists in the history of Western art. Experience the full range of his work as a painter, sculptor, and architect through studies and sketches for such celebrated projects as the Sistine Chapel ceiling and The Last Judgment. The Wall Street Journal calls the show nothing less than the perfect exhibition. Learn more about this major event at getty.edu. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Ann Temkin, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. In the introduction of the catalog, you juxtapose two stories, one in which Jackson Pollock is talking to Lee Krasner and one in which Lucy Lepard is beginning an interview with Donald Judd. I think that's the perfect place for us to start, too. Could you tell those two stories? Yeah, I really liked these two stories. Well, I've liked them both <laughs> for a long time. The one that begins 
the introduction is Lucy Lepard interviewing Donald Judd in the Whitney 1968 show, his first museum show. He's just, what, 39 years old and 38, 39 years old. And he's absolutely awkward. This so goes against the image many people have in their minds of Judd as so eloquent and so powerful a speaker because in his written word, he certainly comes off as very strong and emphatic and not a shred of uncertainty. But in person, he wasn't like that. He was very soft-spoken. And in this interview with Lucy Lepard, a critic and dear friend of his, she's questioning about the work that they're surrounded by. And he's clearly diffident about explaining it or describing it. And the part that we excerpted that I just thought was so funny was she says to him, and this is clearly a conversation that has been going on, you know, many months and years already. So you really won't call it sculpture. He's like, no, it's not sculpture. And I think the best line in the transcript is, is she asks him again, it's just inaudible is what the transcript says. So, you know, you don't even, you can just see him like squirming or something like that. And she's just getting more and more perplexed. Well, you know, what in the world does this leave me with? And I think we end the excerpt with, she says to him something along the lines of, well, what you know, more, more can you say? He says, I, I never even thought about sculpture, almost never. So he he's desperately trying to get her and whoever is going to be reading that interview, away from the idea that he makes sculpture. Because for him at that moment, if he were to have admitted to making sculpture, he would be admitting to doing something that fell into a continuum with what, you name it, Brancusi or Henry Moore or Giacometti or Calder or, or let alone sculptors from previous centuries did. And he felt strongly that what he did was something false. And you pointed out in your introduction how this was a real break from even the previous generation or half generation had thought about wanting to consider their work within a tradition, and that's the Pollock and Krasner story. Yeah, so this is a real old story, a good abstract expressionism mythology story. But one I found, I for a long time just found incredibly moving. And Pollock is painting a drip painting and finishes and calls his wife Lee Krasner over and asks her with genuine worry, is this a painting? And what I've always loved about that, imagining that little scene, is he didn't ask his wife, an excellent painter herself, is this a good painting, right? He asked her, is this a painting? Because what he had done so did not correspond to everything everybody until then would have assumed made a painting that he needed the reality check that, yeah, you know, that's a painting, darling. But at that point, what he wanted was still to be making a painting. For Judd, a generation later, what was important and very, 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 very much influenced by the phenomenon of Pollock and his peers in the prior decade, prior couple of decades, you know, what Judd is wanting is to make something not that his wife would assure him was indeed still a sculpture, but he wanted to be making something that couldn't be called a painting, couldn't be called a sculpture, something that in fact broke entirely from that modern tradition, 
even if it were a modern avant-garde tradition. Of course, when we, when we think of sculpture, we think of what is left of a bulk after something that has, after stone has been removed from it. And that's something that sculptors would continue to be interested in into the 20th century. As you note in the catalog for Judd, his work is quite often a series of hollow volumes or spaces from which volume has been removed. And it's the absence of volume that's important, such as in the progression pieces, where what's not there is is pointedly referred to as being as important as what is there. Why did those hollowed out spaces become so important to Judd? Did that come out of his painting explorations or something else entirely? I think it came out of a whole set of things. And and there's no way, obviously, for us to kind of excavate it with any precision. And also, it sounds much more neat in retrospect than I'm sure it felt at the time. That's always important to remember. But I think for him, he was thinking about how do I make something that completely breaks away, even though there's no such thing, from precedent. And as he wrote, he did think about sculpture as something that was a solid mass. So if he wanted to make a three-dimensional form that wasn't sculpture, he shouldn't make a solid mass. And so even before he starts having the work be fabricated by others and he's hand-making it himself, as we show in the first gallery of the exhibition, there are works in which he puts a metal pipe on top of a box. So you have the air flowing through that metal pipe. Or he makes a piece in which the top half of the box is itself cut in half diagonally so that you sort of have a sandwich with the top quarter of it removed. These kind of moves to import empty space into the frame of what one might have expected to be a full space are the ways that for him, I feel, both get away from the idea of something like a statue as what sculpture is, and into this idea as well of the space of art and the space of life not being utterly separate. So if the space you're standing in and the air you're breathing in and out is also invading and informing the space of the sculpture you're looking at, there's a connection there, which is very different than the connection between a person standing looking at something on a pedestal, maybe even under a glass vitrine. The first piece you mentioned there is the Hirshhorn sculpture from 1963. It's cadmium red with that pipe at the top. And I am always, I mean, I think, you know, any Judd lover has long thought of that as an important sculpture, but it, it feels even more important in the context of the career arc because we see over and over again in Judd's career how important light passing through a sculpture is to him in a way that, I mean, you know, Michelangelo didn't want light going through marble, right? Why was light passing through a sculpture important to Judd? Why was that something he kept returning to? Well, I think one could put together light and air in a, in a sense. And I, and I think it does, have, it does have to do in my mind, and there'd be different answers for different people, but this idea of life, right? This idea of energy in terms of real molecules that are part of the real world 
these are objects that he wants to be in our space, which means space that's informed by light and space that accommodates light. I feel like that's the that's almost like a symptom or, or a telltale sign of a theory or, or a concept that, that's not that hard to understand, which is that these works of art, they're indeed works of art, are things that you are among and that are among you in a relationship that is just a different one from something one looks at, period. It's a fuller experience. You know, it's interesting to me how you phrase that, and I'm going to break the chronology of Judd's work and how I intended for us to to kind of start in 62 and then advance. Because the way you just phrased that reminded me of how I was struck by something in the catalog. There are a number, I mean, probably at least a dozen, of 1960s installation views of exhibitions in which Judd participated, or that were indeed Judd exhibitions. Uh, lots, lots of these black and white pictures in the catalog. And one of the things that really struck me, and I guess surprised me, even though it shouldn't have, is how much more densely... Judds were installed than they are now, so that you as a viewer were among them. And now I think we're used to seeing Judds installed in much more spacious environments, particularly at, say, Chinati or at, or at the Judd Foundation in Marfa. And I guess I wonder if you noticed that, kind of a difference in exhibition practice or installation practice, and if you think it means anything. There are a few responses I have to that, actually. I think, for one, some of those photos can be very deceiving. And I think in, in many of these early installation shots, no matter where you're talking about, things that are very close can look very spacious and vice versa. It can be really, really deceptive. Another response that I have is the kind of mythology of minimalism over the years has turned us all almost into perhaps a dangerously caricatural notion of, oh, you know, you can fit one sculpture per acre of space. And that somehow, you know, anything gains an aura by just having mountains of space around it. And, you know, one can really go overboard in that direction. At the same time, there's no question that these things gobble up space. And the more you give them their elbow room, the happier they get. And I think we were walking a tightrope in putting the exhibition together of having just enough of that sort of space that they need while not just making it an empty show, right? And finding ways to put the best combinations of works in the best adjacencies and positions so that we could sort of ate our cake and had it too. We fit more works into the show to tell a story or many stories that we hope to tell while leaving each and every work a very distinct place and sense of independence from the other works around them. And then one more answer to your question is I do think in those early days, you know, things were not ideal. The work wasn't even understood yet. And probably in a lot of those early installations, even in monographic shows for Judd, there was probably less of an acknowledgement that so much of the part of the piece was the space around it. 
and you do see funny pictures of, you know, just like a row of stacks or something like that, that make you realize that there was just not, not even the knowledge to know what they didn't know about the, the space these things really were asking for. To say nothing of how floor molding looks like such a mistake in those 60s pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's dip back into Judd and moments of his making. In 1962, he moves away from painting, or at least from mostly two-dimensional wall-mounted objects, and into floor-presented three-dimensional objects. The transition seems sudden. At one point in 1962, he's making the large cadmium red painting that is now at SF MoMA, and, and then the cadmium red is suddenly on the floor in, in three-dimensional objects. What about that moment of transition is important to you or, or became evident to you as, you as you worked on it? It's typical of Judd for me in this combination of seeming happenstance and seeming years of preparation. You know, so I think what's the cliche, you know, luck greets those who are prepared for it or something like that. The insight that he could come off the wall may have felt sudden the day that it happened, but in many other ways, it was almost like an inevitable result from the way he was making his paintings thicker, projecting farther from the wall, even curving up off of the flatness of the picture plane. So again, in retrospect, it's a very neat story. At the time, it was, I imagine, less of a clear evolution than it seems to us today to have been. But then once it happened, he was absolutely convinced. And this idea of the work of art that was neither a painting nor a sculpture compelled him, and, and he was off and running. That 62-63 moment seems like, and I think was, a, a significant shift in Judd's everything, except his use of color, which migrates. And it seems to me, and I'm happy to be called wrong on this, that there's kind of a blended progress through to the end without a shift as significant as that one from 62 to 63. Is that how you see it? Or is there another shift that we should think of as being as important or close to as important? You know, I understand from the, the tenor of your question that, that you're recognizing that, that one of our interests in the exhibition and, and the book was showing that there are many more turns in the road and kind of both logical and unpredictable shifts in Judd's approach throughout the course of, what, some 30-some years of working. But I also respect your, you know, implied position there of, of the monumentality of, of that particular turn in 62 and 63. And, you know, just think back, put yourself back in that moment. It's the exact same moment where Andy Warhol starts using silkscreen instead of hand painting the canvases, right? It's a turning point. It's definitely at that moment for this post-abstract expressionist generation, whether they turn into a pop artist, whether they turn into a sculptor like Judd, there's a decision to be made about, I am going to make painting or sculpture, even if I don't call it sculpture, something, I'm going to make something that changes history. And for me, it's very moving to think back to that, to realize the extremity 
uh, of the of the goal they set themselves. The one shift in the work that maybe seems to me as being as I don't know if abrupt is the right word, but as significant as the 62-63 moment, or dramatic, yeah, that's a better word, comes in 1984 or so when um, Judd begins his multicolored works. I, I am not a Judd scholar. Is that a big shift or was that just a natural progression? How do you see that having happened in 84-ish? That for me is is a very dramatic shift too, and one that hasn't been properly acknowledged, I think, because that work was not as much written about and seen in that decade before his death. And and then, you know, he dies and attention kind of shifts. But there was an amazing turn in the work in 84 when he begins using a new fabricator outside of Zurich. And this is a kind of, in a way, technological cause to an artistic question to an artistic desire. But, you know, I don't think you can put all the explanation, obviously, um, on the technological side, because he needed to want that technology or to see what that technology could offer him. But what it was, was folding sheets of aluminum. What it was, was the technological ability that these Swiss manufacturers had to fold aluminum so that you didn't need to weld it. And you could make, as he did, these very, very thin aluminum boxes that were coated with different colors and coated with industrial colors in such a way that they didn't look painted. They just looked like a red box or a green box or a yellow box, etc. And for the first time in his life, he began to make things that just weren't one color or two colors, like a certain color flexi and an aluminum. He wouldn't make things that were just two colors or one color, one material or two materials, but he used this aluminum to make things that that were, as the name says, multicolored and polychromatic sculpture for the first time. And when you think about it, you know, it, it maybe doesn't seem that extreme, but a good thought experiment to do is to think of a 1960s or 70s Judd Stack And no matter if you're thinking of a plexi one or a painted one, whatever material, you're thinking yellow all the way up or blue all the way up or copper all the way up. And the whole idea of a rainbow stack where you'd have a red unit and a green unit and a yellow unit and a blue unit in a tower, it's it's like an unthinkable idea. And then there all of a sudden in 94... This is exactly the track that Judd embarks on, where he can have a full palette of ready-made industrial colors that he can make his work from. And it's an exuberant, exuberant body of work from that last decade that was in many ways not understood at the time because it didn't correspond to all of the stereotype assumptions of minimalism. Your mention of Dubendorf, Switzerland, where Judd started having work fabricated in 1984 and would for another decade until he died in 1994, gives me the opportunity to shill a little bit for the catalog, which is absolutely uh, terrific. I'm sure many listeners are familiar with the, well, with the, with the Tate Modern's Judd catalog. The big difference, a big difference here is that it looks to me like everything's been shot fresh for the MoMA catalog. The representations of the works are enormously better. 
And there are a number of really good catalog, catalog essays, including one by Yasmiel Raymond, who posits that um, Dubendorf, which is an eastern suburb of Zurich, should be added to New, uh, New York and Marfa as places we think of Judd as having lived, as, as, as having made significant work. And so I'm, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to point people toward, toward that essay. While we're, while we're on the multicolored works, what do you think most informed Judd's interest in color? And did Barnett Newman, O.E. Newman scholar and producer of the 2002 Newman retrospective, and did Newman have anything to do with it? I do think that Judd was a longtime admirer of artists who made paintings from the time that he spent seven or eight years making paintings before he gave that up. So not only Newman, although Newman was a friend as, as well as somebody whose work he admired tremendously, but thinking of Pollock as one of the great, great influencers of Judd's work. In fact, thinking about Newman and, and Judd, Newman and Pollock regarding Judd, you know, so much of their greatness as painters is part of what made him become a sculptor. You know, just thinking in terms of anxiety of influence, for example, there's a whole story that can be told about why he didn't feel he could equal them in painting, but okay, then how could I do it? I can go to three dimensions and maybe not equal them, but attempt to reach something of the landmark status that they reached at their moment. But he also, he was a big lover of art. I mean, you know, he went to museums, he looked at hundreds of works of art wherever he traveled. He had a vast art library and color, you know, color is part of the history of art, is a core part of the history of art, no matter what culture, no matter what kind of work you're looking at. And it was especially interesting to him in a, in a way that the materiality of the objects that he was making and the space that he was putting in them, putting them in, was important. I mean, all of, all of those issues are really what go into making a Judd. While we're on color, let's talk about a few Judd and color things. Cadmium red is the color he's using as he's coming off of the two-dimensional wall and onto the floor. We talked about it a moment ago. Why that color? And does his interest in or choice of that color have anything to do with a painting you surely recall from your years in Philadelphia? I think that that color is one that he specifically spoke about in terms of being very good at defining edges and articulating the border of a form. So he spoke about it in entirely non-expressive terms, you know, purely structural terms that cadmium red light allowed you to see the, the edge of a work or the many dimensions of edges of various works. You know, I buy that. You can't argue with him knowing what he was talking about in, in describing its advantage that way. And yet, obviously, it leaves out so much, right? It leaves out so much about what a bright orange red like that expresses, right? I mean, you look at a color like that, it's, it's full of not emotion in the sense of a Mark Rothko kind of soulful, confessional expressive color. But it's, it certainly promotes or elicits feeling in a viewer that's very different 
than it would if they were all navy blue or if they were all gray. Or chartreuse, as one of the early ones was. Yes. So even though he didn't choose to speak about that, for me, there's something about him liking that cadmium red light that does go beyond its role as a delineator. Judd did live in Philadelphia in 1947. He surely would have known the great crucifixion diptych uh, by van der Weyden there. Each of those panels has that big red textile hanging from a masonry wall in which the edge of the red textile is made all the clearer by what you were just discussing. Do you think that painting was important to him? Or do you think that painting motivated his cadmium red use? I mean, going back to what we were saying earlier, where at the end of his life, he really just sort of let his love of color rip. He also wrote an essay just the you know months before he died about color, particularly. And he brings up that painting at that point as a particular object that he loved and remembered from what at that point is nearly 50 years prior. Now, do we have the sense that he had that very conscious memory of, of that painting 15 years later in New York City? Who knows? But it's it's there in the kind of bedrock of, of his visual memory for sure. And that painting, that, that color, that cadmium red light color, if you start to look for it in historic paintings, you know, Renaissance paintings, for sure, it, it, that's, a, that's a pretty good hunt to, to go on. One other place I see Judd learning from color is, is from Matisse. Indeed, in a 1975 interview, Judd talked about his interest in Matisse and scale. And in an 87 interview, he talks about how as a painter, particularly, he paid close attention to Matisse. I think the standard art historical reading, both of his Matisse references, is that he noticed that Matisse found that the intensity of a color is related to how much of it is within a given artwork, how much of the object is X color. I mean, I, I think it's fair to suggest he never forgot that. Yeah, no, Judd definitely held Matisse as a favorite. In fact, in one of his buildings in Marfa, there's a beautiful black and white Matisse lithograph on the wall. And, you know, there are certain lineages that feel very obvious for artists, for us to draw connections to. So if you think about Judd, you're probably, especially if you were looking at black and white reproductions of Judd's, one can imagine that the conversation went more in the direction of Malevich and Judd or Mondrian and Judd, very geometric abstraction that preceded his. But especially if you look at the works in real life and just kind of, you know, point your head in a different kind of direction, the precedent of the color of Matisse is a wonderful kind of joyful lineage in, into which, for me at least, Judd absolutely places himself too. Uh, let's switch gears to the materials Judd uses. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the stacks are the first forms to which Judd brought multiple materials. He makes stacks out of uh, anodized iron, stainless steel, copper. Is it meaningful or interesting or relevant that that's the form he uses to which he first brings multiple materials? You you mean he, not multiple materials in, in one 
object, but he would do this. And that actually wouldn't be true, there, that there, there would be floor boxes or there would be wall progressions or, or wall boxes that Earlier? all around the same time he was, he was experimenting with different metals. So what do you think he found in, 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 in shifting those materials? So when he, when he goes from using anodized iron to stainless, what's, what's he finding useful there when he goes from, from or, or, or brings in brass? What, do you, what, 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 what in the materials matters to him? So what's really great about that is it's the kind of question that we can ask 50 years after the term minimal was introduced and like a while since that was sort of taken as a gospel, I think, because my answer contradicts everything that might lead you to think about the word minimal with Judd, because what he loved in all of those materials was their characteristics, right? So if you have a certain gauge of steel, or if you have a galvanized iron that has all of those snowflakey spangles in it, or if you have an aluminum, or if you have another gray metal, not two of those grays are alike, either in their reflectivity, either in their color, either in their sense of density. And then if you start bringing in things that are altogether different colors, like brass or copper, you know, it's a, it's a really wealth of coloristic textural qualities that are kind of enough for Judd, right? He doesn't need to paint them different colors necessarily or make them into different shapes to find variety. It also strikes me as, as a range of materials that belie his anti-sculpture status, right? I mean, a, a sculptor was happy to let marble be the marble, be, be the surface, just as Judd is happy to let these different metals provide surfaces. And absolutely. And, and the difference being that they weren't ones that were thought of to do that for art. Right. Although, you know, after him, of course, they would be, yeah. And, you know, leaving alone those early career paintings, in, in, in 1973, Judd begins using naked plywood. He had used plywood before, including in some of his earliest sculptures in the early 1960s, but in 1972, he uses it naked and un, unadorned, if you will. Was it as simple as that's when he met Peter Ballantyne, who was, who was a plywood guy, or was there something that he discovered in the material be it that it was organic or surface or something else? I think that, that plywood, like, say, a sheet of aluminum or galvanized iron, had the appeal of being an industrial material, not a fine material, that had a lot of surface interest, right? And, and that had a lot of visual quality to it that one just took advantage of as a ready-made. I also think metaphorically, this was the time that his work was becoming more architectural in scale as he was beginning to live and work in Marfa. And the idea of sculpture taking on architectural proportions, whether within the space of a room or in a commissioned work, site-specific work, this all became very relevant for the 70s. So I think the idea of plywood as something that you build with actually makes a lot of sense as something that became interesting to him as a material to use for the work. Probably a few more answers to that as well. Speaking of materials that Judd starts with and that he kind of carries through in one way or another, plexiglass, um, it's there in the earliest floor-mounted pieces, such as the 1963 sculpture at the National Gallery of Art that we talked about earlier in the show. 
and he keeps using it, you know, into the 1990s. What about Plexi do you think he liked? So many things. For one thing, it was new, right? And to go back to Matisse, Matisse said, paraphrasing badly here, but that a great artist needed to be of his time. And Judd knew that. And one of the things that being of his time meant was using materials that had been invented, I mean, you know, within recent memory. So the plasticity, the plasticness of of Plexi was a real appeal. Also the idea of getting away from being a hand maker, for example, a painter of color, here was color that was ready-made. And you got a sheet of Plexi, it was purple, just like a sheet of aluminum was gray. You didn't do something to it. It was just inherently purple or pink or yellow or orange or whatever. And that appealed to his sense of the hands-off concept of what it would be the artist would contribute to the work. I also think the great thing about Plexi was it was transparent or translucent. So all of those qualities of emptiness and hollowness and space that we were talking about at the beginning of the show are revealed by the Plexi. We have a piece in the show from 1964, which is one of a number that have come to be called turnbuckles. And that's because there are wires that go in the interior of the sculpture from the across the length of the sculpture from one end to the other. And they're a wire at one side, a wire at the other side that come together in a buckle in the middle. And sort of their tension, almost like a rubber band, holds the two ends of the sculpture together. Well, what does he make that box around the three sides that holds those two ends together? He makes them plexi so that you can actually see through and, and understand that those turnbuckles are holding the sculpture together and that if you were to unclasp the two turnbuckles, the whole piece would fall apart. That's interesting that you can understand the interior of the sculpture thanks to Plexi being the material that that box is made of. I'm also struck by how Judd often used Plexi in ways that allowed the viewer to see that it was a reflective surface or that the surface was reflective. There is a long history of reflection being important to American philosophy. Emerson's 1836 nature is built around a series of reflections, both metaphorical and not. And of course, there are all those American paintings, uh, painters who then take that idea forward um, with all of those white mountains and other mountains, I guess, for that matter, reflected in, in lakes. Do we have any reason to believe that Judd was interested in the reflections Plexi provided? Yes, it wasn't something he talked about particularly. His own rhetoric really focused on the matter-of-factness of his work. But I think that the flip side of that coin is the degree of mystery and sort of magical effects that come from such qualities as reflectivity that remain equally powerful to an observer today. And they aren't the ones that served his purposes in trying to define, you know, a very down-to-earth type of art. But I would be hard-pressed to say that these more, well, mysterious, I wouldn't say mystical, but these much more intangible and 
sort of aspects dealing with beauty, right? And, and, and with sensuous, perceptible, emotional kind of thinking. He always talked about the non-distinction between thinking and feeling. Questions of reflectivity or optical illusion are a perfect example of that. You know, your feeling and your thinking can't be distinguished as you're reacting to that set of visual effects. I, you know, being an art history nerd, I'm always thinking about someone like Judd in the context of other artists, both artists from his own time and earlier, and art historians over the many years have spent lots of ink on Newman and Judd and Flavin and Judd and, and the other big male minimalists and Judd. And the catalog for this show got me thinking more than I have in a long time about Bondicoo and Judd. Judd reviewed Lee Bondico's shows. I think at one point he reviewed two in like three months or two in four months or something. What in Lee Bondico do you think most attracted him and did he most address? He respected her enormously. And if you look at the developments in that work from 60 to, you know, 65 even, you realize how much the issues she was thinking about in terms of projection from a wall and and empty space and full space and issues of presence in a work of art that's freestanding on a wall. The idea of what he saw in the early 60s as he reviewed more than 600 exhibitions as an art critic just can't be overstated, right, in terms of how that informed what he was thinking about in terms of his own work. I mean, I don't think you could have had a more informed person who was at that point in his early 30s deciding how he was going to do what he was going to do. And he took very, very seriously the work of peers, as you say, like Chamberlain or Flavin, Frank Stella, the ones that have been mentioned more, but people like Bondaku, people like Husama as well. You know, I think this is another aspect of our work in wanting to debunk a certain amount of the Judd mythology with this show and this book. The minimalists have been characterized as male. And so maybe people assume that they weren't looking at the work of, in fact, really close associates who, who were women. And, and Bondaku certainly is one of those. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. That reminds me of Ann Goldstein's superb Mocha show from ten or fifteen years ago, A Minimalist Future, that worked to complicate that that story, both in terms of installing Truett's next to Judd's, but also in terms of installing Easterners next to Westerners, trying to really fudge up that story. Of course, some of us kind of like to point to Larry Bell as, as, as maybe being the first minimalist, you know, his work of the late 50s being forms that would preoccupy a lot of the minimalists in, in the subsequent years. Bell, a Californian, but that's work he made in New York. Finally, I want to talk a little bit about drawings. There are 14, by my count, uh, drawings in the show and dozens more in the catalog, like, like so many more in the catalog, I didn't even try to count them all. I would guess maybe like 70. And the catalog often includes drawings related to specific works as a point of reference. So for that 63 Hirshhorn piece that you brought up and that I keep bringing up, there's a drawing um, on the facing page in the catalog 
that goes with that sculpture. One of the interesting things about that drawing, presumably part of why it's there, is the measurements that Judd outlines in the drawing are not the measurements that the sculpture ended up being. Do you have a couple of favorite examples of what we learn from being able to to reference Judd's drawings and and the sculpture together? The idea of the drawings being in the show here and there, even though we couldn't do anything approaching a, a, Judd, a Judd drawing retrospective, was really to make the point for the museum goers that these things, all of the sculpture that they see in the exhibition was conceived in his mind and then on paper or through making drawings and sketches on paper, calculations on paper. The way that all of his assistants talk about Judd's use of time was that mornings were devoted to reading, writing, and drawing. So the making of a sculpture, even though it's not his hands putting the sheets of metal together, the making of, of the sculpture so much occurs in his head and, and then on paper that that felt crucial to, to make visible in the space of the show. And I think, it, it, as you say, the, the drawings for things that never became a work are as instructive as the things for drawings that became a work right? Or the things, the calculations for measurements that he chose not to use as much as the ones he ended up using. You realize that as self-evident as an obvious and maybe as simple as these things that ended up being sculptures look, none of that came easily or naturally or without, you know, scores of rejected alternatives. That very, very empirical, pragmatic trial and error kind of way of getting there seems to me really central to understanding the process. There's a kind of empiricism to Judd's drawings that I, I think to anybody, you know, that when we think of drawings of the period, that certainly is, is also there in Flavin's drawings, which have gotten survey exhibition treatment in New York at the Morgan about a decade ago. I also, as I looked at the Judd drawings in the catalog, and, and again, there are a zillion of them and it's great, but I also kind of thought of the way Wayne Tebow drew in kind of these years, which was empirical and plotting rather than investigational. Is there some reason why artists as seemingly totally different as Wayne Tebow and Donald Judd or Dan Flavin were using or thinking through or making drawings in that way? That's an interesting question. I think it, 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 I would have to think about that for a longer time, but I think it, it points to the way in which the decade of the 60s was just such an almost unfathomably profound turning point for so many artists all over the world that we're still processing what it was they processed then. Ann Temkin, thanks very much. Thank you. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins' Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, 
installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects, from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins's literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. Experience Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through April 19th. The artist Barry X. Ball reinvents traditional sculptural formats and existing art historical landmarks using state-of-the-art 3D scanning technology, computer-aided modeling software, and CNC milling machines in combination with centuries-old craft techniques requiring thousands of hours of detailed handwork. Barry X. Ball Remaking Sculpture is the artist's first major U.S. museum survey. Learn more and plan a visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Caitlin Murray. She joins me to discuss Donald Judd Interviews, a new 1,024-page compilation of over 60 interviews that Judd conducted during his career. Murray, the director of Archives and Programs at Judd Foundation, co-edited the volume with Flavin Judd, the Foundation's artistic director. Interviews is a companion to the 2016 book Donald Judd Writings. Both volumes were published by Judd Foundation and David Zwerner Books. Amazon offers Donald Judd interviews for $26. Caitlin Murray, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Your introductory essay in this volume notes that Judd could be curt in interviews and considered interviews to be reductive and simplifying, although I got to say they, they almost never read that way. He makes, he makes even bad questions interesting. So I get it, but he still... Uh, does, at least as presented in this book, and there are many you did not include, 60 interviews over about 30 years, which at least by the standards of today's art world is a lot. Why did he do so many? I think that talking in conjunction with writing gave Judd an opportunity to correct misconceptions about his work, about the qualities of his works, and allowed him to speak for himself, which I think he felt was important for for every person to be able to do, artists as well, citizens. And I think he didn't want to feel bound by other people's conclusions about his own work. And the interviews and also the ability to write reviews early on and then long-form essays later on in his life gave him a, a great opportunity to kind of correct the, the record. One of the things I thought about as I read through some of these interviews is how this volume will be useful to historians as a series of markers, both in the way you just noted, Judd addressing um, his own work and especially his own ideas as the years went on, but also as, a, as an early minimalist's thoughts on painting. You know, this is a this is a hinge moment in the New York art world where everybody wants to talk about to talk to Judd about painting before they talk to him about his work, which kind of gets pretty funny by page one hundred or so. And he's also, you know, kind of providing uh, his thoughts on rationalism and its relationship to European and American thought, such as in the Bruce Glazer and Lucy Lepard interview from from late sixty five. What are some of the ways in which you think scholars and researchers and critics and even students will find this volume most useful? Well, I, th I think the first thing I want to mention is that 
the first interview opens in 1964. And this is right around the time when Judd is writing specific objects, which becomes his, his most well-known essay. So to kind of put that in context, he is being asked to write about what are the, the qualities that make new art distinct, work that that's not quite painting or sculpture. And that's not something that he's necessarily seeing a applies to his work, but that is more of a trend that he's seen across artists like Lee Bontecu or Klaus Oldenburg. So I just want to situate the kind of opening of the interviews book within that context of, of Judd as a critic and writer. In terms of the relevance of this volume uh, to Judd's scholarship, I think for us at Judd Foundation, we really felt that Donald Judd writings and Donald Judd interviews and then a forthcoming volume that's just come out this week, Donald Judd Spaces, really served as a, a suite of books to get to know more rich context of who Judd was as a thinker and an artist. And we are very fortunate that Judd maintained a very extensive archive in Marfa, Texas. It's full of his writings, correspondence, gallery records, fabricator files, and so on. And so we felt that as stewards of this material, it was exceedingly important to make them as accessible as possible. So many of these materials do come from Judd Foundation's archives, and we felt like or from, you know, very out-of-print exhibition catalogs or hard-to-access archival resources at other institutions. And we felt like making this publicly, publicly accessible was one of the primary things that we could do uh, as the steward of Judd's legacy. And one of the things I was also thinking about during this process was that I was hoping that scholars would not have to do the work that I was doing again. So if I was retranscribing a four-hour interview between Judd and Lucy Lepard, I wanted to make sure I was doing it at the quality that would, would pick it so that a young art historian would not have to undertake that task again and could instead focus on their attention and energy on something else. Uh, somebody who used to transcribe tape for a living as a sports writer, I can... Uh... <laughs> I can relate to the pain they're in. I want to talk about some specific things Judd talks about and some specific people he talks about in a, in a moment. But before we do, as you worked on on the whole, the entirety, the, the, the this 30-year talking period, did you find any of your ideas changed or that anything that you found popping up or that kept popping up surprising you? Well, I think going back to the kind of reluctance question that you that we discussed the reluctance to speak I think that there are interviews like with the students at the Marfa Junior High School where amazing amazing so these are these are literally students at Marfa Junior High School to be clear <laughs> they're eighth graders and they're at Judd's house in Marfa the block and I think that the generosity with which he speaks to the students and and treating them as equals. He's not talking down to them. He's not pandering to them. He's still articulating, he's still articulating his position as an artist and thinker, but I think he does it with a tremendous amount of generosity. And I think that that translates throughout 
the, the interviews, even when there are elements of frustration at being asked the same questions over and over, I think what stands out to me is the kind of respect that he gives to the interviewer to conform their own opinions and his position that, you know, his, his opinion is just his own. And it's Amy Golden, uh, one of the interviewers in the, the, the book says he's describes them as personal observations and private preferences, and that he does not want to bind anyone else to his conclusions. And I think that's important to remember and, and kind of undoes some of this thinking that, that Judd might have been stern or prescriptive. I think he's quite the opposite. One of the things that really jumped out to me in reading the book is how, especially in the late 60s and early 70s, it's, it's really clear that we're kind of witnessing in New York centric hinge moment where there is a migration from two-dimensional to, to three-dimensional where, where, where the status of painting is being considered with what now reads like kind of hilarious aggressiveness. You know, the, the painting is dead narrative is, you know, so been so disowned in, in, in the decades since as to be hilarious. And yet so many of the interviews here are, are, are invested in it. How, how might we contextualize um, maybe especially the first half of this book within the context of, of that kind of real transitional moment, especially in New York, from kind of a painting-centric art world to kind of a more polyglot art world? When I think about that, I, I think we can really look to Is Easel Painting Dead from 1966, which Barbara Rose is moderating. Barbara had been a student with Judd when he was, uh, when they were both studying art history at Columbia. And also on the panel is Darby Bennard, Larry Poons, and Robert Rauschenberg. And I think that's quite a contentious panel discussion. And a number of these are in the 60s. The stakes, I think it's, it is easy to forget now how that the stakes felt very real for these artists. And I think, again, in, in terms of the conversation about this switch from 2D to 3D work, I think it can sometimes be oversimplified. I think for Judd as an artist, he's saying that that's not what interests him, but we're talking in terms of his own work, but we're talking about an artist whose greatest kind of forebears for him were Jackson Pollock, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko. He's not an artist who's looking to, especially to a David Smith, or a Frank Uzi. And he has the highest regard for painting. His Frank Stella, for example, he collected Stella's work. He also collected John Wesley's work quite late in his life, or throughout his life, rather, but for the Chinati Foundation in Marfa, Texas. And so I think that, again, when we read these interviews, we should recognize that People were really taking sides, and that was kind of part of a polemic, but that it was even for Judd more complicated. He, he didn't think that, that all painting was bad and useless. It just wasn't something that he was pursuing in his own practice. You can tell some of the interviewers do think that, though. <laughs> and, and it's also worth mentioning, I was fascinated throughout by how often Judd brings up Piero della Francesca and... Poussin particularly. Um, 
just sometimes out of the blue, yeah. And I think we should remember that Judd did study art history, and he was also an active art critic from 1959 to 1965. He was a fan of Kusama's Infinity Net paintings. They were very close friends. And so I think sometimes these conversations, when you're in public, they become more charged and divisive when they're actually quite nuanced. And most of the time, people are talking about their own work and and not necessarily making wide prescriptions for for everyone's work. Uh, Although Judd is, you know, he is quick to say what work interests him and what work does not. He's not uh, afraid of taking that position. And it's one I think he earned through years of writing reviews and seeing sometimes reviewing 20 to 30 shows a month. I think he he knows what work he finds interesting and what work he does not. But he's you know he's not telling other he's not telling Larry Poon stop making your work. In fact, I think there are things he quite likes about Larry Poon's work. I think just sometimes in these these scenarios they can be quite charged. And this is also, I think, contextually, we also get a sense of some of the politics of the time. I mean, even though in the 60s, it's not being, it's not as direct as in later interviews where Judd's addressing the Gulf War, I think there is a layer of the the situation in, in Vietnam and a kind of heightened polemic scenario that we that we do get in these interviews from the 60s and early 70s. We'll come to those later career interviews on on war and a military oriented economy in a little bit. But while we're here in the in the in the painting sculpture narrative, um, I was struck over and over again by how Judd often, uh, I don't know if reframed is the right word, but it's close, reframed his questioners questions about painting to be questions about two dimensions versus three. And there's an example that I'm hoping we can um, read together, um, maybe role play a little bit together from Judd's end of 66, beginning of 67 interview with the painter Joe Bear. Joe Bear asks Judd if he's issuing a total condemnation of painting, for example, and then I'll read as Bear. Or do you see any chance for paintings at all? I think another kind of painting, like Bob Irwin's, has not all the aspects of the old painting. Why do you call that painting? Primarily, I guess, because it's parallel to the wall. I guess it has to be two-dimensional. But you do draw, and drawings are also two-dimensional. I just put them down sometimes so that I won't forget an idea. They're sort of materialized ideas. I guess they could be useful in getting to what you want, which is an art object. Yeah, but otherwise I don't think it's too interesting. So you don't think these sketches of ideas can stand as or be a work of art? Uh, No, I guess not. Want to make something that I want to look at. I don't want to make something that stands for the thing I want to look at. But aren't there levels of complication, complex ideas or qualities, in fact, that a sculpture cannot make apparent in just the act of looking? You don't just look at the damn thing. One look at it is, by definition, complex in quality. That doesn't mean it's an idea as an idea or that it stands for something. I, I think that's such a great exchange because it's, it's this kind of talking through the, the, the two dimensions and the three dimensions. 
and and how um, an object is both made but also physically experienced, but also because, and I wonder if you think this is as strange as I think it is, that the conversation stays up in the clouds in a certain way. And the interviewers, it seems so rarely ask Judd about specific artworks. <laughs> right. And Judd often in his writings, we don't find him discussing specific artworks. I, I think we do find it a little bit more in some of the interviews, but I think you're right, especially when we're considering an artist who from our accounts in the, at least in the archive at, Judd Foundation, we have nearing 5,000 drawings that Judd made uh, across art, architecture, and design. So it's quite a significant two-dimensional practice, even though he does not necessarily consider those drawings and sketches to be works and works of art in and of themselves. Are there topics on which you think he is particularly thoughtful or insightful about his work or about other things? I found, as I read through the book, that I thought he was uh, really interesting as he talked about color and material and maybe most especially on the relationship between color and material, such as the color of plywood. I agree. I think that Judd is really a key thinker in, in what he considers to be the most important elements of art, which are color, material, and space. And I think getting us to better understand how space is created, and also this distinction here that came up in the, the passage that we just read about representation, that he's not trying to represent anything. He's trying to make an object in the world that has its own definite qualities. So, for example, when he's talking about color and material, for him, plywood does have a color, anodized aluminum does have a color. And I think that, for me, that's a way of thinking and feeling about the work that is quite open. And that's one of the things that going through this process of the, the writing, organizing the writings and the interviews, I do think that it's quite difficult to keep an open situation when one says so much or writes so much. But I think Judd does keep an open situation uh, for the viewer, uh, the reader, and the listener. There are uh, a number of ways in which these interviews are a real snapshot into a time and place in American history. One of them is, of course, that, that Judd is so thoroughly soaked in New York that he barely knows, say, Los Angeles, for example, or San Francisco exists. That's a mindset of the time, but it's also a reminder that this is the, you know, air, airfares were not deregulated. For, for, for most of the period in this book and that the flying West was really expensive. We see <laughs> kind of hilariously by the end, interviewer after interviewer after interviewer asking Judd why the heck he's moved to Marfa frickin' Texas. And he's forever having to explain it <laughs> to people who just don't get it or, or, or know it for that matter. But we also get a read across the book on the way women were becoming more present in the art world and not just as artists. It's really striking how many of the interviews here are, are with women. Did that surprise you? And do you think anything in this volume will lead scholars and critics and students to different ideas about how Judd approached um, the work of women, either as art historians or as artists? Certainly. I mean, I think one of the interviews that really speaks to this is Judd's very long interview over three different occasions 
with Lucy Lepard in 1968 at the time of his large exhibition uh, at the Whitney Museum of American Art. And I think that we see some of Judd's position about women in the art world when he's talking to Lucy about the sexism in art criticism and uh, the way in which women were removed from some of the reviews that he wrote or how he was supposed to address women by myths and that he couldn't just in, in terms of the, the naming of the, the woman as an artist could be problematic at that time in, in art criticism. And I think within this kind of idea that Judd is a masculine artist, I think we do see across the board here how many women artists, women art historians and critics are very interested in Judd's work and that it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a kind of gender sensibility. It's just that they're excellent at what they do. They think Judd is excellent at what he does. And the two can come together in very productive conversations. But I think it is striking how many women, especially in the 60s, are in conversation with Judd or leading symposia and so on. And I think part of this context is also that the artists and art historians were friends with Judd. Barbara Rose had gone to school with him. Judd knew Lucy from the world of art criticism. Betsy Baker as well. And Emily Pulitzer, who then later became a supporter of Judd's work. So these were Joe Bear, who certainly was a friend of his. I think that these artists and critics were in his in his milieu as, as friends who where there was a mutual respect. There's one little excerpt from a 1967 panel for a show at what is now the St. Louis Art Museum that Emily Rao, who, who, who was still Emily Rao at the time, uh, she asks Mark DeSouvero a perfectly reasonable question about color. And DeSouvero replies, quote, immaterial. I can't be grilled. Come on. And Rao replies calmly and, and coolly. When do you come to a conclusion about color for your piece, such as Blue Arch for Matisse, where color is obviously a fairly crucial part of it, or you wouldn't have called it that? That, you know, there are some moments, especially in some of the panel discussions, where um, one is reminded what uh, some women had to um, endure. I mean, you know, like that one in particular, just kind of my jaw dropped. <laughs> Feel the tension and a kind of, I don't know, the artists sometimes taking, taking it out on the moderator in their conversations who are just, you know, they've obviously agreed to be in conversation, but then really are combative about their work. And that, I think you, you do see that in some of these interviews from the sixties and it is quite difficult. And then you have a Barbara Rose who just won't, if she has a point that she wants to make, she's going to make it. And she's not going to let anyone slide. She's going to, and we see that a lot in her interviews with with Judd, and she interviewed him a number of times. I was also struck by that about how a question that she wanted answered, she would keep going until until Judd responded. Yeah, I noticed that 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 same thing. And I one of the things I I thought about it was that in today's art world, almost always artists get the opportunity or insist upon the opportunity, or their dealers insist on the opportunity to revise and extend their remarks in, in interviews. Um, so when one reads a, a printed 
on paper interview with an artist in a, in a, in a gallery brochure or whatever, it's almost always edited into, into kind of stiltified, lifeless prose. And one of the real delights of this book is that people sound like people. People are talking. Um, their words have only very rarely been sanitized or, or reduced to academic speak. You, 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 it, it's like reading thinking. Exactly. And you don't, you don't have, I mean, there's no management happening here. It is off the cuff and it is of its time. And I think that Judd remains surprisingly consistent throughout the book in terms of his views. And I think one of the things that we hope comes across in how people are speaking, but that we know is maybe only really possible by seeing video or hearing audio of Judd is really how soft-spoken of a person he is. Even in these interviews where you think things are really contentious or he it must have been uh, so, sounded very strong or declarative, he always sounds quite gentle. And that kind of skepticism that I discussed in the introduction, I think comes across in how he speaks. And I think it is important for people to be able to hear the artist's voice. And we do hope that comes across in how it reads, but we know that that's quite a challenge. One of the surprises for me, uh, probably shouldn't have been, was how often in in the later years Judd is being asked to discuss war, defense and war industries, and how strident and strong and, and clear and insistent he is about sharing his thoughts on such. I guess, A, was that a surprise to you? And B, why do you think that was so important to him? From Judd's writings, we can see that by the the late 80s, and especially beginning of the Gulf War and the early 90s, Judd is writing extensively on, on the Gulf War and on questions of military-industrial complex and how war affects affects art. Uh, he writes an essay called No More War or Nyveter Creek in German, and he's including those writings in his exhibition catalogs. So whereas before, maybe specific objects or his essays on art and architecture were being included in his exhibition catalogs, he insists on including his anti-war essays in his later exhibition catalogs. And I think that this is a topic that is at the forefront of his mind. He's less concerned about any of, I think, what he would consider the trivialities of the art market or the art world. He had expressed from an early time in, at a symposium called The Artists in Politics in 1970 that he felt like his work was political and that it was the responsibility of every citizen to participate in politics. But I think that he becomes quite declarative in the early 90s. So, for example, in an interview with the Icelandic daily newspaper, he the interview, the published interview begins, war destroys everything. It not only destroys human lives and property in Iraq, it also destroys culture. It also destroys the work I am doing in Texas. So the way in which, from the top down, that war is a destructive force and that it is both a 
public and a personal issue that needs to be addressed for, for Judd as an artist. That interview was with Olafur Gislason, who was a writer for um, an Icelandic daily that was aligned with the Iceland Communist Party, and which indeed went, um, the, the paper went out of business shortly, shortly thereafter. Finally, just for fun, do you have a particular favorite among the interviews? Gosh, there are so many that I really enjoy. I think that one of the interviews that I particularly like it was for a film, Chris Felver's uh, film, Donald Judd's Marfa, Texas. Um, because I am Marfa-based, I have uh, an affinity for those spaces. And hearing Judd describe the importance of his work in Marfa, the importance of what uh, the spaces that would become the Judd Foundation, I think is really crucial for me. I also really enjoy the last the last interview in the volume with Judd's daughter, Rainer, uh, and her friend, filmmaker Joshua Homnick, because I do think it really starts, it really touches on some of these larger questions of uh, belief and of science and kind of gets at some of the foundations of Judd's thinking that we don't necessarily get when we're kind of dissecting the distinctions between two-dimensional and three-dimensional art. I think seeing the ways in which Judd is an, an avid believer in science and the ways in which he his work and efforts in his life have been directed towards breaking down dichotomies between thinking and feeling, between living and working, between what's considered a political act and not a political act. I think that some of these more intimate interviews really get at that. And I'm, I'm thankful that we still have records of these interviews that we could make available. Amen. Caitlin Murray, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.